0: to James chapter 2. Seems like forever since we've been in the book of James. We've been progressing through the book. Then we had Advent, and then it's the new year, and here we are again. Uh, Pastor Tony is actually preaching at a church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where our youth pastor that we grew up up with, uh, he'll always be our youth youth pastor, even though he's uh, way up there uh, above in age. But uh, Tony's going to preach there and be heading back tomorrow. Pray for him as he travels back from Western New York. We're looking at James and we're looking at the way that the author, James, portrays for us what is saving faith, what is living faith, what is active faith, what is the fruit of faith. But he makes sure to establish way back in chapter 1, even back to verse 18, that God is the one that gives new life. God is the one who by His sovereign grace borns us again. It says that we've been brought forth by the power of God, that He's the one that born us out of His own will and out of His plan by grace through Christ. Not of things that we do that make us worthwhile or savable, but it's all of God's grace that He brings us forth. And so, being brought forth, that imagery of being born, then we don't stay a baby. As spiritual beings born again by Christ, we then begin to grow and we start to mature. And those marks of maturity are, in a sense, tests of that faith if we have really been born again. And so, there is the test of hearing and doing. James says, don't be hearers only, but be doers of the Word. There's the test of the tongue. How do we use our speech should reflect the way that, um, the way that uh, uh, someone who has faith does use their tongue. That There's the test of those in need, where he says that pure and undefiled religion is this, that you visit widows and orphans in their distress. That is a mark of somebody who has genuine faith when you are faced with those who are in need. There's the test of the world. Are you going to keep yourself unstained and unpolluted from the world, or are you just going to go along and get along? Chapter 2 begins this examination of, are you going to show partiality? Are you going to act like the world does? You treat the rich different than the poor. You take the people in your crowd, different; treat them different than you treat people in a different crowd. We looked at the way that the law of God now is viewed for those who have faith. The royal law, the law of liberty in verses 8 to 13, with this new perspective on the law, it isn't the, the, the taskmaster that, that we can't obey, but through faith in Christ, he gives us the new ability to keep that law. And it becomes, therefore, for us, a law of freedom, of liberty. And now, he, chose, he closes this chapter, verses 14 all the way through 26, in discussing, okay, what's the relationship between faith and works? And in this first chunk that we're going to take today, verses 14 to 19, we are going to see that proper connection between this foundational truth of faith and then the overflow of works. And then next time, we're going to look maybe more in detail at this this word justify. We're justified by works and how that correlates with what Paul says and being justified by faith. We'll unpack that a little bit more. I want to reserve that for next time, this time. Let's begin with that foundation of faith and works and discerning living and active faith. Would you follow along in your Bible or in the bulletin uh, insert that you have, James 2, verses 14 to 19. This is God's inspired and authoritative word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we want to come before your word with humble hearts. And as we come before your word, we are not the judge over it, but we are the servant of your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working that activity of illuminating the scriptures for us, bringing light to the word so that we can just grasp and understand what it actually means we know that those spiritual things are spiritually discerned and without the holy spirit living in us we we wouldn't understand but lord we also confess that we are in desperate need of your spirit's power to change and transform us the power that raised Jesus from the dead is with the power that is, in fact, at work in us so that when we see what is true, we can be assured that we have the power to do everything you've called us to do. So, Lord, with that power and with that light, Lord, we want to approach your word humbly and teach us and enable us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The other week, Tony was describing kind of the journey that God had for him in bringing him to understand faith in Christ. He grew up in a church that kind of uh, clouded over that simple gospel message, and he heard at a backyard Bible club about what it means to understand you're a sinner and before God worthy of his judgment, and then see that Jesus Christ is suffered and died and, paid and took on the judgment that you deserved and put faith in Christ and know that you can have peace with God through that faith, that it's not of your works, it's through faith. And so Tony, when he came to that understanding at a backyard Bible club, then told us that he was looking for a place where he could learn about the Bible because his church, they didn't talk about the Bible in much depth. So he was looking for a Uh, what did he say, a Jesus-freak, radical church where they actually went to the Bible and read it and studied it. And so he came to the church that my parents went to and that I went to. So here's my journey. I'm growing up in the church. I'm hearing all the Bible stories, and I'm not arguing with any of it. It all made sense to me. Maybe some of you have a journey similar to this. I never knew a day that I didn't believe that Jesus was my Savior, that I was a sinner, that I needed salvation. But I do remember about kindergarten Sunday school class when Mrs. Wadsworth says, hey, if you know you're a sinner and if you know and want to ask Jesus to save you from your sins, come out in the hallway and we'll pray. That there was something special that, that I almost felt like I had to do to, to pray. I, I didn't argue with, I'm a sinner and Jesus is my Savior. So I, I went out and did that. And throughout my growing up years, there was a lot of emphasis in my church about understanding exactly what the Bible said. Um, understanding the truth as revealed in Scripture. And not getting deluded or mixed with errors and or pro- orthodox understanding of the truth. To understand the faith and believe it, believe it, believe it. But as I got into my middle school years and learned a lot about the Bible, I started to wonder, okay, like, but how does that change your life? Sundays were cool, you study the Bible, but those other six days you kind of did whatever you did because that was your regular life. And so I had this dichotomy of church life and then everything else. And I started to wonder, okay, so how does what I know to be true supposed to look like in my life? And that's when I started in probably middle school and high school grading those Christians around me. Um, are they going to church as much as I am? Well, not so much. Oh, oh he's going a lot. Uh, are they there going to the nursing home on Christmas to sing Christmas carols like I am? Oh, no, I guess not. The, the, I was starting to rate myself compared to them to say, you know, do I have real faith? Am I a spiritual person? And those externals became, like, real important. And that kind of had me puzzled a little bit because... I saw the outside, I could try to keep up, but I knew the inside of my heart. I knew how prideful I was, I, not really how prideful I was. I had an idea that I was, that I was self-righteous, that I was angry, that I was lustful. Those things you can't see on the outside, but there's sins on the inside. And I had to say, God sees that, but at least I'm keeping up with other people on the outside. Sounds like a Pharisee to you? Yeah, it pretty much was. And then I went to college, and my first semester, one of the first classes I take is personal evangelism class, how to share your your faith with somebody. And one of the assignments in that class was give your personal testimony as a way of sharing how somebody can come to faith in Jesus. And I spent time writing it out, and, you know, I turned it in, and I got a B-minus. Like, man, I start to doubt my salvation almost. Like, I didn't have, like, the awesome, because I started to hear people with amazing testimonies. Like, yeah, they ran away from God, they rebelled, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and then they're in prison, and all of a sudden they see the light, and God radically saves them, and their life is is full of a transformed new life. I didn't have that. I kind of wanted that. I was a little jealous for that. But is that really what I should think about when understanding real faith? Um, Super faithful people, super Christians are the ones who have this big transformation. Those that go on the mission field and do all these radical things. I was all confused. Then I started to see what James and the whole of Scripture helps to make clear The confusion that I had, but where does my faith fit in together with my works? And I've come to the conviction, and I hear before you today say it's absolutely critical that every Christian understand the relationship between your faith and your works. If you don't got that straight, you end up becoming just another actor, showing another actor how to act, and it's all about performance. Or it becomes this rigid and barren belief system that's full of knowledge, full of information, full of smart-sounding stuff, but there's nothing going on in your life that actually looks like you've been transformed. James is here to help us to understand the relationship between our faith and our works. And the first thing that we understand from verse 14 is, is faith that's professed must be also possessed. To profess is just to say it, to speak it. And that's what verse 14 says. What good is it, my brothers? Now, he's dealing with brothers. He's dealing with people within the church, other believers. And if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And I love how the ESV translators call it that faith. It's not, can faith save them? But it's a particular variety of faith. A faith that says, I can claim to have faith, I can say I believe on Jesus, but I don't do anything about it. That I don't have any works that follow up. Basically, you talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. Can somebody really be saved and just talk the talk? I believe Jesus is my Savior. But when it comes to the things that he commands me to do and the things the Bible says I should work out, uh, I'm not so much into that. I like getting out of hell, but I'm not sure that I want all the duties and the obligations. It's just a little much. I just want to be able to live my life. Well, James is saying that's in question. That kind of faith that says I don't have the works, does that really save The scriptures teach that works are inevitable, but it's a matter of whether those works come from a good tree or a bad tree. Remember when Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 17, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So it's not a matter of, will I have works or will I have fruit in my life? You will. There is something that is how you are living your life. But the way that Jesus categorized how you're living your life is either good fruit or bad fruit. And that good fruit or bad fruit is an indication of the root. What kind of tree you're dealing with. Faith is the root. And from the root of faith should come those good works that God has prepared for you to live in. Well, what's interesting along with this is, if someone says he has faith, do they really have faith? If they say the words, I believe in Jesus, are they really a believer? Jesus in John chapter 2 Starting at verse 23, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Okay, you know the signs he was doing. He's feeding people miraculously. He's healing sick people. He's casting out demons. He's raising the dead. And people see all that and say, Oh, I believe in Jesus. And so Jesus sees that they believe on him. And it's an interesting way of responding in verse 24 of John 2. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about them, for he himself knew what was in a man. See, he saw his heart and then saw what would flow out of that. I don't have that vision. You don't have that vision to know what's in the heart of a person. So when somebody professes faith, we don't know if they possess faith. Every single one of you who are a member at Redeemer have been asked by the elders in their interview, who is Jesus Christ to you? And it's a very simple question that we ask, and we keep it simple because being a member of a church shouldn't be any harder than getting into heaven. You should be able to profess what the scriptures say about salvation. Who is Jesus Christ to you? And what we're looking for is not, have you prayed a prayer? Have you walked an aisle? Have you been at a conference and felt a warm fuzzy? You no, know, I, 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 Those times are sometimes where God does work in a saving way. But if your belief and faith is in that profession and not in Jesus and what he's done, that's where... That faith professed may not be a faith that's possessed. So we have to know who is Jesus, the, the Jesus of the Bible. Now we, we, we recited the Nicene Creed and the Apostles Creed. We cited other times, and we can have correct biblical understanding of who Jesus is. The facts: He is the Son of God. He was made man. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. He rose again. And all that truth about who Jesus is and what he's done can be verifiable fact that we believe. But if it's the same belief as I believe that Abraham Lincoln existed, or I believe that any historical figure existed, that's not faith. That's assent. That's, I get the truth. What we want to also know is who is he to you? Is there a personal connection that because you know him, you're a different person? You've been changed from the inside to the outside. And that, don't worry, it doesn't happen all at once. It happens over time. It happens gradually as he works that out in us as he works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure, as Philippians 2 tells us. That process that he works in us, that faith possessed becomes a faith professed. A professed faith is a possessed faith. We see it in action. There's warnings here that Jesus gives about our faith as well. But I get ahead of myself. James says in verse 15 to 17, that it's faith alone that saves, but this faith will never be all alone. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So that so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. What kind of faith is that? It's dead. It doesn't have works. You see a brother or sister in need and you don't help them. The second greatest commandment that God gives us, according to Jesus, is to love your neighbor as yourself. Surely you'd take care of yourself, but to say, go be warmed and fed. Your faith is not living itself out. It's probably a dead faith. When Jesus... In Matthew 25, verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right hand. Aren't you glad you sat over here today? He'll place the sheep on His right hand. He'll place the goats, sorry, on his left hand. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. But the righteous, you guys will answer, Lord, when did I see you hungry and feed you? When were you thirsty and did I give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them and say, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, so you did it to me. Okay. Okay. So Jesus says, at this judgment, I'm going to see the way that you lived out the faith that you believed. In another place, he says, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this? Yeah, but you didn't have genuine faith. In this passage, the person who enters the kingdom is the person who believes and then lives that out. It's not living it out that gets you into the kingdom. The living it out, the works, are just what demonstrate what's already in the heart. Don't confuse those two. Don't think that if I'm a do-gooder, then God's got to accept me. That's not how it works. But when God has changed your heart and given you saving faith, that faith is not alone. It will demonstrate, it will live itself out in those works. I want you to think about this Quotation from a man named John Stott. He wrote in this book, Between Two Worlds. And he he helps us to think about faith and works this way. He says, when we proclaim the gospel, we must go on to unfold its ethical implications. And when we teach Christian behavior, we must lay its gospel foundations. The foundation of the gospel is is that you are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, otherwise you could boast about it. It's what Christ has done on your behalf, and you rest in that. And when you understand that gospel foundation, then the ethical implication of Jesus is my Savior, and he's my Lord, he's my King, he's the one who, at his command, I obey. You know, I didn't choose this for our choral intrite introit today, but isn't it interesting in John 14 where it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That is simply an overflow of that faith in Christ and love for Him that we want to keep our those commandments, the ethical implications for the gospel. Saving faith, we're saved by faith alone. But that faith is never alone. I want you to think of when you hear a clap of thunder. You think, oh, I must have just missed the lightning. Let me keep paying attention. And then you, you see some lightning and you start going, one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. Figuring out, what is it? Every second is seven miles according to the speed of sound. But then you hear the, the thunder that follows. Lightning, thunder. The thunder follows the lightning. You know that, right? It's not the thunder and then the lightning. That lightning flash tells you there's going to be thunder. It's coming. Your faith is not alone. Listen for then the works that will flow from that. Now, sometimes you see that lightning, and then boom, it's like right away, and you're like startled. And sometimes as we are new baby Christians, as we start off in the faith, there are things that we hear from God. He says, believe this, I believe it. Now do this, I do it. And it's just like, flash, boom, and it works its way out. But there are some things in my life, and I'm sure in your life, that we get the flash of faith, I believe it. And it takes a little longer before you see anything change in our lives. And sometimes things change, and then they go... And it can be fits and starts and everything, but it's going to follow. It's going to be there. Because that's what the, the way that God has designed faith and works to come. Now, we need to wrap this up in verses 18 and 19. In these verses, James describes a faith that knows Jesus must be must willingly submit to Jesus. Someone will say, I have faith, you have faith, and I have works. What I'm hearing in that is, alright, I'm a faithy Christian, you're a worky Christian. You like to do a lot for Jesus, I like to think a lot for Jesus, believe a lot about Jesus. We can all get along, right? I'll be a faithy Jesus. You, That's not the way that we ought to see the way faith and works relate together. If you believe, you will willingly submit to the Lord Jesus. It's it's not like certain kinds of Christians willingly submit to the Lord Jesus. All who are of faith in Jesus Christ should willingly submit. Now, are there sometimes God calls you to do something you don't want to do? Yes. It's hard. And you, out of a duty to your Lord and Savior say, I'm going to do even if I don't feel like it. Even if it's hard. Because Jesus is my Lord. He calls the shots. And it's hard, but we do it. And over time, even some of those hard things can eventually become my delight. But I'm not talking about only do the things you want to do. I'm actually saying, if God tells you to do it, you should willingly submit to doing it. Why? Well, He warns us about demons. He says, verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Wait a second. He's comparing us to demons. I don't like this, but here's what he says. You believe that God is one. That should be ringing in the Jewish ears of those listening. That's the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord is God. And Teach your children this while they're sitting and while they're walking. and Everywhere you go, you need to know this truth about who God is. And this right understanding of who God is. This orthodox understanding of who God is. And particularly, who is Jesus Christ? The demons can answer that. They do. The demons, when they responded to Jesus, it says in Luke 4, 33. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Perfect, sound, orthodox belief in Jesus. Demons had it. Even... The demons knew who Jesus was, and they also obeyed him. It goes on to say, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. What did the demon have to do? And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. The spirits, the demons even, know the truth, they obey Jesus, but they don't do it from a heart of submission and love and appreciation. John eight twenty eight. when they came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to here to torment us? Before the time, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you had cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out, and they went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned in the waters. They obeyed. They did what Jesus said. They know he's the Holy One. But do you want to be characterized as one who has a faith like a demon? when we understand that faith should lead to obedience that true faith is a faith that willingly submits to Jesus just get back to the basics trust and obey it's romans it's john 14:15 if you love me keep my commandments i know it's hard but jesus says i'll ask the father and he'll give you a helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You can willingly submit to Jesus because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Orthodoxy demands orthopraxy, right living. Otherwise, it's worthless. The faith that's professed must also be possessed. Don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk. Faith alone saves, but that faith is never alone. Like thunder always follows the lightning. Your work should follow your faith. Faith that knows Jesus must willingly submit to Jesus. That orthodoxy will show itself in right living. So let me challenge you to think as we wrap up. If you've rested on your profession of faith, I believe... And you've not been bearing fruit in your life. Go back to God's word and understand the gospel foundation of what a wonderful savior you have that has rescued you from the domain of darkness and has transferred you into the kingdom of the son of his love. And then think about how I should then live in light of that gospel reality, that truth. If you've been busy doing and serving and living and then started looking around and writing your grades about how other people aren't doing as much or I'm not doing as much, and then I want you to go back again to the gospel foundation. And remember, it's grace that you're saved by faith. It's not of works, otherwise you could boast. But you are his workmanship. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's prepared beforehand. Now go walk in them. Live out those ethical implications. That way, when you live, you'll let your light shine before men. They'll see your good works, but they won't say, oh, what a good person you are, but they'll see our Father in heaven. Say, wow, God does work and changes people's lives. When we get back to the gospel, and then we unfold its ep- ethical applications, we get faith, and we get works, and we understand how they rightly And righteously fit together. Let's pray. Lord, we want a living and active faith. We don't want dead and barren branches to be thrown into the fire. Lord, we thank you that the new life that we have isn't something that we conjure up, work up, and strive for, but it's one that you give us. Lord, we struggle with doubts, we struggle with fears. We struggle with anger and concern, but Lord, I pray that you would, through the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, grant us the faith that will transform our lives, that will grow us into the image of our dear Savior Jesus, so that you would be glorified in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.